Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your goodness, and we desire more of you, and we choose to praise you. We want that song to to be true of our lives, that whatever comes, that we would worship you and praise you throughout the day. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, for you being long-suffering in our lives. We just ask that we would understand the gospel, our need for you, Jesus, to die for our sins in a greater way. And Holy Spirit, we know that you're here. We know that you live inside of us, but we welcome you afresh in our lives. Would you lead us and guide us in truth? In Jesus' name, amen. Many times we seem to be just living on the wrong measuring system, the wrong standard. It's almost as if we're over here with inches and feet. We're measuring ourselves and life and and inches and feet, and God's on the metric uh, system. We tend to compare ourselves with each other. We go, man, if I'm doing better than this person in my family, or I'm doing better than this coworker or this neighbor, or I've never done this or, or that, thinking that we can be justified before God based on our actions. And what we're going to see in this morning's study is that we're all guilty uh, before the Lord. Last week in chapter 1, it really addressed a, a person that doesn't believe in God, that has rejected the truth and how they uh, need a Savior. But chapter 2, it addresses the critical moralist. The Jewish people had a hard time seeing their need for a savior because they were committed to the law. They weren't like the Gentiles. They, they weren't out doing these things that were, were sinful. And so why would they need Jesus to die for their sin? So Paul writes to them and says, we're all in a place where we need the gospel. There's a famous saying that there's equal footing at the foot of the cross, meaning that we're all at a place where we're broken sinners before Christ. We have to keep the end game in mind as we're studying these few chapters. It's one argument that leads to the end of Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thankfully, Romans goes forward from there, that we're justified freely by God's grace through faith. That Jesus has paid the price for our sin. He's a propitiation for our sin through his blood. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love towards us. So in these next few weeks, I I hope that our hearts grow in appreciation for the gem of the gospel. There's this black backdrop of our sin But then the glory of the fact that Jesus came and died for our sins. Jesus told a parable about two guys that headed to the temple to worship and to pray. And their prayers were literally like this. Lord, I thank you so much that I'm not like this person and I'm not like like that person. And they literally considered themselves to be righteous. They literally considered themselves to to be in this place where because of their actions that they were right uh, before the Lord. But then there was a tax collector who was praying in the temple as well. And he was beating his chest and wouldn't even lift up his eyes to God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus then asked the question, who do you think went home justified? And it's obviously the tax collector who was aware of, of his sin. Sometimes it's more difficult for the critical moralist to come to Christ than someone whose life is a complete mess. Because the critical moralist, their life is a mess too. 
They just don't realize it. They don't see their need for a savior and see need for grace in their lives. Verse one, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in what you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. The word therefore takes us back to the prior paragraph. What's it, what's it there for? The end of chapter one, that if you approve of some sinful action, you're, you're guilty as well. So in light of that, you're inexcusable. We can't escape God's judgment. Paul digs into our hearts here a little bit and says, if you judge someone else, you actually condemn yourself because you're practicing the same thing. Let's lay a little bit of groundwork in this idea of judging. It's very clear from verse 1 that this is judgment unto condemnation. There is determinations that we need to make for identification of fruit. God says you'll know them by their fruits. You are identifying you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. So, so we need to be identifying We need to be identifying sound doctrine and and false doctrine. I think we need to be more discerning maybe than any time prior. And that's not judging unto uh, condemnation, but this is speaking of you're condemning somebody. You're, You're looking at someone else and you're harsh towards them. You're critical towards them. You've got that critical spirit. You're judging their motives. And God says, the reason that you're doing that is because you're guilty of the same thing. We find this a couple places in scripture. The first is with King David. And David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed Uriah, her husband, thought that he had effectively covered up his sin. It doesn't seem that anybody knows, but God knows. And isn't that the case? God always knows. So God sends Nathan the prophet to come and tell this story to David. There's a rich man who's got lots of resources, lots of cattle, lots of lambs. His neighbor's a poor man. He's just got this one young lamb that's like a pet to him and his family. Well, the rich man has a guest. And when the guest come, comes in, he goes to his poor man and says, I'm, I'm taking your lamb. And David gets all kinds of crazy angry. He says, that guy should be killed. Where the law says he owed restitution... But being killed was way beyond just punishment. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. You're that man. And at that moment, David's convicted of a sin. David went and took from Uriah. And David had all of the resources. But why in that story was David so angry? Because he was guilty of this same sin that frustrated him to such a great degree. Woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. I've always wondered, where's the man in the story? You know, it takes two to tango, right? But they only bring the woman and they say to Jesus, well, what should we do with her? Trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus gets down on his knee and he begins to write. We don't know what he was writing, But we do know the results because it says from the oldest to the youngest, they went away. Most likely it was a time, a place. Oh, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of sexual sin. I can't cast the, the first stone. The next oldest. Oh man, 
I didn't think anybody knew about that. I'm guilty. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you, but go your way and sin no more. Here they were literally trying to condemn this woman, condemn her to death, but they were guilty of the same thing. I was convicted by this uh, this week as I just began to examine and the Holy Spirit be, began to search me. Why am I so irritated? Why am I, am I so frustrated? The, the sin in others that, that frustrates me so much. Why, why am I getting so frustrated? Why is it so elevated in my perspective? And as I wrestled with this verse, the Holy Spirit's like, you're guilty of the exact same thing. This thing that you're frustrated about in others, you're, you're guilty in the exact same, same way. So pray through that this morning. Allow the, the Holy Spirit to illuminate that in your heart and your life. Uh, do you have a, a group of people or a certain person? Or man, they just irritate you and, and their sin is just off the charts in your mind. And, and you've gotten to that place where you can't think good of them and you think ill of them. And, and God's saying, look, There's probably something in your heart where you're guilty in the same way. What happens to the critical moralist is as they're judging someone else's sin, it makes them blind to their own. And and that's the problem. When we're we're looking at someone else's sin, where we're blinded and those blinders get thick to our own sin. It's amazing how bad my sin looks on somebody else, right? I can tolerate it in my life, but then it really frustrates me in in somebody else's life. In verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So God's righteous judgment that causes us to need a Savior, it's according to truth to those who who practice those things. The person that's trusting in their own works for for salvation, God is going to say, well, what about this? And what about this? And, And hold them accountable to the truth in their lives. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? God's judgment is inescapable. For some reason, there was the moralist, the the Jew that was thinking, I can escape the judgment of God because of my good works. And Paul's saying, Well, what causes you to think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Here you are condemning somebody else, but you, in fact, are are guilty of the same thing. And it is humbling that we can't escape God's judgment apart from Christ. Christ is the only solution for our sin. The only thing that can save us from our sin before a holy God is the the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do, no works that we can do, to bring us to the place that we can escape God's righteous judgment according to to truth? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So God's being good. God's being patient, forbearing, longsuffering. But yet, Someone's not responding to the goodness of God to lead to repentance. This is the way that God delights in bringing us to a place of repentance is his goodness, his grace in our lives. But a lot of times we misunderstand his grace for approval of our sin. Think, oh, 
Here I am sinning. Here I am being critical of others and and condemning others. But there doesn't seem to be any consequences that are coming in my life. And it's because God's patient. It's because he's he's kind. It's because he's wanting to win you over with his kindness. Not that he's approving of your actions. When we don't know Christ as our Savior, you know, every sunrise is an expression of God's grace. Every time we rest in our bed, it's an expression of, of God's grace. What Jesus has done on the cross is the clearest expression of, of God's grace. And it's God's goodness that leads us to uh, repentance. When we have the opportunity with, to share with, with others, we want to focus on the goodness of God. Because it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And that does involve sharing the bad news I mean, the bad news is we're sinners. The, the bad news is that there is just judgment from God. But if we don't know the bad news, then how are we going to know the good news? But point to the, the goodness of God revealed in the cross and what Christ has done for us. Why is repentance so important? Well, John the Baptist taught repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus taught repentance. The disciples, the early church and epistles teach repentance. Repentance is not a work that we do to earn or deserve salvation. It's a change of mind and direction. You're driving to Pueblo, south on I-25, and you have this epiphany. Why in the world am I driving to Pueblo? (laughs) So you have a change of mind and a change of direction. You get off the freeway and you drive back up to the promised land, to to Colorado (laughs) Springs, right? (laughs) That's repentance. We're on the highway of sin. We've got a heart that's rejecting God. And we turn from our sin. We change our mind about our sin. Do that U-turn. And as we repent and believe, we're saved, surrendering to to Christ as our Lord. In verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you treasure up for yourselves wrath in the day of God at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here's this person that even though God is being good and God is being gracious, they're continuing to trust in their own works, considering themselves to to be righteous, looking down upon others with a hard heart. Condemning others is a hard-hearted way of life. It's a hard-hearted lifestyle. It's hard to maintain and sustain. And man, it sure takes a toll on us. An impotent heart. It's a heart that can't produce life. It's a heart that's not filled with the fullness and and the grace of God. And and here they are in this this place of being that critical moralist, looking down at others, not seeing their own sin, and just treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment. The great white throne judgment when those that don't know the Lord stand before God. I wonder how many religious people unfortunately, heartbreakingly so, don't know Christ as their Savior. Saying, well, I I go to church, and I tithe, and I try to help people, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, and I, I haven't done this. And never coming to that place of fully understanding their need for grace and their need for, for Jesus to, to die for their sins. So God's judgment is righteous. We see this in verse 5. It says, The day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
And the reason that his judgment is righteous is look at verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. We don't want God to give us what we deserve. If we go before the Lord, God, give me what I deserve, man, that's a scary place to be. Render me according to my works. Render me according to, to my deeds. But when someone rejects Christ, when they reject the gospel through the course of their whole life, then ultimately they stand before the Lord And they might have this argument with God, well, I'm a pretty good person. I definitely was better than my dad, my mom, or my my siblings, and my my co-workers, and I didn't do this, and I didn't do that. I I think that I should be in heaven. And God says, well, what about all these things? What about these things that you thought no one saw? In verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. If we just took verse 7, you might think of a a works-based salvation. You might think, well, okay, in order to have eternal life, I've got to have patience and continuance and doing good and seek glory and honor and, and immortality. But we know clearly from the book of Romans, even from this section of Romans, that we can only be saved by grace. So what is verse 7 talking about? It's not salvation by works, but it's the gospel resulting in good works. It's if you take a rock and you throw it into a pond, there's, there's an effect. Not perfection, but there's an impact that Jesus has upon our lives. You can probably look back at your life since you've received Christ as your Savior, and you go, Jesus has changed me. I, I'm, not, I'm not the same person. I'm still a sinner, and I still fall short, but, but Christ has, has changed me. And that's what this verse speaks to. Verse 8, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So the person that doesn't know Christ as their Savior is self-seeking and doesn't It rules their lives, not obeying the truth and not obeying righteousness and then resulting in God's indignation and wrath. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. So that person that takes God up and says, I want to have a contract with you that's based on my own works, then it is tribulation and anguish to every soul who does evil. No matter their background, to the Jew, to the Greek, the non-Jewish person. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So this is the person's life that's been touched by the gospel. There's glory, honor, and peace to those that work what is good. Again, not working for salvation, but working from salvation. The grace of God working in and through our lives. In verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. God's judgment is impartial. God doesn't play favorites. This would be a little bit shocking, I think, for the Jewish people, them seeing their need for Jesus to die for their sins, because Jewish people, especially during the time where Paul was writing, would feel like, I'm in with God because I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I'm born into the family of God. So assuming that 
they have right relationship with God and not seeing their need for Jesus to die for their sins. This is exactly where Paul was when he was Saul before he knew Christ as Savior, is he was trusting in his Jewishness. I'm a Hebrew. I was born to the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I'm I'm trusting in my Jewishness. Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. If you've never heard that song, you think I'm crazy, right? That's what we would sing uh, growing up in... uh, children's ministry, but they, they would trust in that. And God's saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're from Colorado or South America or, or South Africa. It doesn't matter that your spouse is a, a believer or your grandparents were or, or your grandma was a, a woman of God. It, you're not saved by association. You're only saved by faith in Christ, of you personally trusting Christ as your savior. So, so God's just in his judgment. He's not impartial in his, his judgment. In verse 12, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So you've got two categories of, of people. You've got the Jews who have the law that study the law And so God holds them accountable according to the law. But then you have the Gentile who's never heard the law, that's never studied the law, and they're judged by their conscience, which also does line up with the law. So either way, the person that has the background in the law or doesn't is held accountable before God. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. This is why it's such a a tough road to go down to try to be right with God, justified by our own works, is it's not just knowing the law, but it's doing the law. Sometimes I run into people that want to live under the law, and I'm like, really? All 613 commands? You know, are are you familiar with with all uh, of the law? It's actually impossible. We don't even have an animal sacrificial system to make sacrifice for sin, to to cover sin. So the standard is not just some of the law, but it's all of the law. You hear it, but but you've got to do it in order to be justified. The only one that was ever able to accomplish it was Jesus. He lived perfectly. He fulfilled the law perfectly and was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Verse 14, but when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Makes perfect sense, right? (laughs) Kind of confusing. What is this talking about? You've got the Gentile that doesn't have the law, doesn't have that background in the Old Testament, but they have their conscience inside of them. And that's what verse 15 refers to, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. This is an amazing proof of the existence of God is the fact that we have conscience, that we have a conscience. You go throughout the world and look at history past and people have conscience. All cultures 
believe murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. Where does that come from? It's a God-given conscience. God has wired that inside of us, right? Young children being pricked in their conscience and understanding, man, I I shouldn't act in in this way. Where does that come from? It's God-given. It's hardwired by the Lord. The scripture also tells us that we can sear our conscience with a hot iron. We've all done it at different times in a particular area of our lives where we sin. And at first, man, our conscience is gripped and we're like, oh man, this this was wrong. I shouldn't have, have done this. Second time, conscience doesn't scream quite so loud. Maybe by the time we're 200 times in, 2,000 times in, our conscience is completely seared. It's completely cut off in that, in that way. So God says to the Gentile in his righteous judgment that they're held accountable according to their conscience. They may say, I didn't know the law. I didn't, I didn't read the law. And God's going to say, well, what did your conscience tell you? Well, your, your conscience was hardwired to love God, to be a worshiper, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And how did you do with that? Well, I fell short, and I, I sinned, and I stepped over my conscience uh, many times. In verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God judging uh, the secret sins of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. See, see, God knows everything. What if uh, this morning, if our secret thoughts, all of us collectively, including those on, on live stream, you don't get off the hook on this. What if all of our secret thoughts were just put up on, on the screen for us? We, we would echo what God tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because when we think about the, the critical moralist, we, we think about this person that's religious, that, that does good works, and, and they put themselves in this elevated position, well, God sees the heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about his righteous standard, says, have you ever been angry in your heart towards someone and called them rock a fool? Ever been driving on Powers Boulevard and you rock a fool? <laughs> you know, you fool. What do you think you're doing, right? And then you, you hear your kids repeat it and you're like, I don't know where they learned that. You know, it's like, where in the world did they ever learn that? There's anger in the heart and God says, you're a murderer. You, you have murder in your heart. You lust after somebody. You've, you've committed adultery. And we start to go through that and we realize, man, I'm, I'm a sinner before the Lord. What, what do I have to be able to look down on someone else? And to think in, in some way that I don't need the grace of God for the forgiveness of sins. And thankfully here, judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Jesus dying for our sins, rising again for our sins. Those that have faith in the gospel are justified and declared righteous. So instead of our sin being on display, the blood of Jesus is on display, covering and removing our sin. That's good news. That's where we can stand forgiven before a holy God. And I hope you hear that this morning. If you do know Christ as your Savior, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. The whole purpose of this is is showing us our need for Christ and showing us to to the degree that Christ has removed our our sins uh, for us. 
three questions I want us to, to consider and we'll be done. The first is, do I judge others without seeing the sin in my own life? Do I, do I judge others without seeing the sin in, in my own life? Have you found yourself just really fired up about someone else's sin and, and how could they? And, well, don't get me wrong. You, there, there's real sin there, you know. Yep, they, they in fact are, are, are sinning. But, but why, why the response in me that is DEFCON 9? You know, why, why am I having the, the David response instead of a, a response in the gospel of, man, Jesus has died for my sins. He's, he's forgiven me of my sins and I get to extend that grace. Is it possible that I am sinning in the same way of the person that's frustrating me so much. Here I am condemning them, but as I'm condemning them, I'm blind to the sin in my own heart and in my own life. And then am I responding to God's goodness? Am I responding to God's goodness? As you listen to God's word this morning, maybe it's been evident in your heart of, I've never asked Jesus to save me from my sins. I've always thought that I was a pretty good person. I kind of assumed that I was right with God because I try to do good and do right by God and do, do right by others. And this morning, Jesus would invite you to repent from sin. Do that U-turn and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to, to believe that Jesus died for you and, and rose again. Ask him to be the Lord of your life, which means for him to be your master. In just a moment, we're going to enter back into worship there's going to be a team available here in the front to pray with you. It's not about joining a church or trying to get anything from you. It's you receiving Christ as your Savior. You praying and saying, I, I want to receive Christ as, as my Savior. Right where you're at, you can cry out to Christ. I'm, I'm repenting of my sin. And Jesus, I want you to forgive me and, and be the, the Lord of my life. But know from God's word, there's not going to be anyone in heaven that's going to be able to stand before God based on their works, stand before God based on their own merit. The last question is, do I see my need for God's grace? Not do I see need for God's grace in my spouse's life, in my kids' life, in my friend's life, in Colorado Springs. Oh, oh Colorado Springs really needs God's grace. Christ rejecting culture and in the United States, oh, that really needs God, God's grace. Yeah, yes, absolutely. A- absolutely, our families need God's grace. Our, our community needs God's grace. Our country needs God's grace. But me personally, do, do I see my need for God's grace? That, that's the point of this section of Scripture is that we're humbled before the Lord and we go, wow, I needed the grace of God far more than I realized. There's this black backdrop of my sin, this black backdrop of my depravity, but don't stop there. Because Satan knows the scripture, and he loves to use the scripture against us. And you're probably already really good at condemning yourself, and you're like, man, I, I came to church on this snowy morning, and I knew I was a sinner. Now I really know I'm a sinner, and I'm miserable, and how could God love me? That's the wrong message, right? Man, I realize I'm a sinner, I realize it in a greater way. But wow, God loves me. Isn't it amazing that God loves me? Isn't it amazing that 
Jesus' sacrifice was enough to forgive me of my sins, that I'm justified, that, that I'm declared righteous. And then we wear the Jesus glasses. We wear the filter of God's grace and it affects our worldview, the way we see others, where we're not so shocked. Oh, oh my goodness, you, you sinned against me? <laughs> you, you, you sinned against God? Oh yeah, you're, you're a sinner. I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. And I've received grace and forgiveness. And I'm going to extend that grace and that forgiveness to you as well. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Let's just take a, a few moments to wait upon the Lord together. Father, we thank you that you're with us, that you love us. Would you search us? Would you know us? Would you show us those areas of our hearts where we've got blinders on? Allow the Holy Spirit to, to search you and know you. Who, who are you most frustrated with? And begin to ask that question. Is it possible that we're guilty of the same things that we're so frustrated about? Let's talk that over with the Lord. Scripture says if we confess our sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let go of that bitterness. Let go of that, that hard heart. List them by name. Say their name and say, I forgive them in Jesus' name. In your heart, I, I forgive them in Jesus' name. And Father, afresh, we, we acknowledge our sin before you. We, we are not righteous. We're, we're sinful. Far more than we want to admit. But you know. And we thank you that you love us. We thank you for the gospel. But God demonstrated his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that we're justified freely by your grace through faith. No other way that we could be saved. Pray you would protect us from our flesh and the enemy who would want to bring condemnation. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're sinners who have been saved by grace. We thank you. We praise you. And would you help us, Lord, to live our lives with this worldview of grace, to, to extend the, the grace that we've received. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.